welcome. Uh, I'm Mu'ain Rabbani, and this is um, Politics and Policy on Status Al-Wada. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us Dr. Nicolas Gauss van Dam, one of the premier Middle East scholars in the Netherlands and one of the world's leading experts on modern Syria, and also a retired Dutch diplomat who, among other functions, was the head of the Middle East section in um, the Netherlands Foreign Ministry and served as ambassador to various countries and most recently as the special envoy of the Netherlands to the Syrian opposition based in uh, Istanbul, Turkey. Kos van Dam is the author of the very highly regarded The Struggle for Power in Syria, Politics and Society under Assad and the Ba'ath Party, which was initially published, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, in 1979. Yes. And most recently, in a book um, recently published um, uh, this year, Destroying a Nation, the Civil War in Syria, which is published by, um, is it I.B. Taurus? I.B. Taurus, yes. Okay, great. And... uh, Kos, um, welcome to the program, and we're very pleased uh, you could make the time to be with us today. Thank you. May I, may I just make an additional remark? Please do. My, my book, The Struggle for Power in Syria, indeed, that's correct, first appeared in 1979, but it has had four editions. Every edition became thicker, more volume, and new chapters, and so on. So this was 1979, 1981. 1996 and 2011. Okay, and all very much worth reading, as is your new uh, book. So thank you for that uh, correction. Thank you. If I could perhaps start by looking at the origins and development of the conflict in Syria. At the time that it began in early 2011, uh, the conventional wisdom was that Syria was in uh, many ways really no different from other Arab states and societies where we had seen upheaval and revolution in 2010, 2011, Egypt, uh, Libya, Tunisia, of course, um, Yemen. But you, I think, are one of those, uh, one of the few who um, almost from the outset warned us that Syria was a fundamentally different kettle of fish than many of these other um, uh, states and societies I just mentioned. And I was wondering if you could clarify that. And specifically, I think one of your points is that the Syrian state and security sector had effectively been preparing for precisely the type of scenario that unfolded in 2011, since at least the late 1970s, if not earlier. But against that, I think many observers would say, well, that's really no different than, for example, um, uh, the Egyptian security sector, which was also primarily geared against um, internal challenges rather than foreign conflict. Yes. Well, I think Syria, as, as you noted, is completely different from all these other countries where the Arab Spring to, took place. Particularly, it was a regime, or is a regime, which was empowered at that time almost for half a century, having almost half a century of experience in how to stay in power, how to ex- uh, get rid of opponents. But there, there was a specific uh, combination, which was that the Syrian regime, its main or most sensitive positions are 
occupied by people from the Alawi minority. And of course, the, the regime is not an Alawi regime, but it's a regime in which the posts are being uh, occupied mainly by Alawis. It has also many Alawi opponents because a dictatorship is not is for the whole people, not just for uh, one sector not. So these Alawis were and are, they have a big solidarity. I mean, those who are in power. And uh, they feel threatened by other people. And I think one of the very important developments in Syria was in the, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, where the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria or the, the military, uh, military split off or branch of it, they started to kill Alawites, not because they were members of the Ba'ath Party or of the regime, but because of them being Alawites. And they thought that by that they could pr provoke a kind of sectarian provocation between the population minority of a majority of Sunnis and this Alawi minority. And then they thought, which I think is fully invalid, they thought that the majority could then win from the minority. But it doesn't rely on the number of people you have. It depends on the number of people who are in powerful positions, who have arms. So they provoked, they killed many Alawites, and then this resulted in the bloodbath of uh, Hama in 1982. And of course, it was very bad, all these people killed. But it was provoked in the sense that the Muslim Buddhahood, they had taken over the city, and it took almost a month before they could deal with it in the most terrible way. But this is, in fact, a prelude to the present conflict in the sense that here at, at first you had in, in, in Syria peaceful demonstrations, lots of people, perhaps millions, but then the more extremist forces, uh, Islamist forces, they jumped the revolution and they took it over as it were. And there started the confrontation between these Islamist, more radical people and the Syrian regime. So I think the main element is the combination of having half a century of experience and how to to remain in power with the most ruthless methods and the minority factor of people from a minority, not a minority as a whole, who are feel being threatened. And they have a reason to feel threatened because the Islamist radicals, I'm not talking about the peaceful demonstrators, but they have a... They sometimes quote a fatwa of Ibn Taymiyyah, the Muslim scholar who said that it's it's completely allowed to kill or to assassinate uh, Alawites. So this element is very important. If I understand you correctly, and I believe you've said this elsewhere, you're not making the claim that the Syrian regime has been a sectarian uh, regime, but rather is a regime that relies on sectarianism in different ways to maintain itself in power if 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 the distinction is proper and at the same time you are also not making the contention that from either the regime side or the opposition side that the present conflict was motivated by sectarian factors from the outset is is that correct that's correct it was not at all motivated by sectarian motives in the first place what i think is an important thing is that is the perception of the regime. 
because it is heavily dominated by people from the Alawi uh, minority, the opposition, or at least the Islamist opposition, uh, perceives them as a sectarian regime. So I think from the Alawi side, it's not the re any religious uh, thing which is important. It's more their communal uh, solidarity. But if one... And can I just, uh, can I interrupt? Um, when you say communal solidarity, should we perhaps give equal weight to family and regional relationships as we should to the sectarian identity of, of these elites? Or do you feel that um, perhaps the sectarian identity predominates? Well, I think that's also a specific case in Syria. If you look at the Alawis, they are, their origin at least, their geographic origin is mainly from the northwest, from the mountains there. So there you have a, an overlap of family, region, tribes, uh, communalism. So people are linked to one another because they know one another very well from their own region. And so they re this is the same what was at the time of the regime of President Saddam Hussein. Uh, most, the key figures were most, mainly from Tikrit or the villages around his place of birth. So that is very important, but they happen to be also a religious minority, uh, but religion as such, I think, is not that important, at least from the Alawi side. But the opposition to that regime, they think they are uh, religiously motivated, and so then the dynamic of sectarianism in the, in the religious sense starts to emanate, and it's very difficult to, to get rid of that. And it effectively began taking on a life of its own as the conflict expanded and acquired, um, increasingly acquired the characteristics of an armed civil war. And I think many people would say that over the years, key players on both or let's say all sides of, of the current Syrian conflict have increasingly become motivated by sectarian factors. Is, is that something that you would agree with? I wouldn't say so. I mean, uh, the motivation is mainly to get rid of a dictatorship. And for the Islamic radicals, the, as the additional element is, of course, the, uh, the religious factor. But I think in general, the revolution did not start because of sectarian motivation. It, it was only bound to play a role because of the composition of the Syrian elite army. So, and the security first, uh, uh, services where these people from that minority are heavily dominated. But I would like to also to make another point. Please. That the Arab Spring, when the Syrians started to revolt, those who revolted in 2011, uh, in March, then the situation in the Middle East, in the Arab world, was that the president of Tunisia had fled after demonstrations, Zain al-Abidin. Um, and then you had President Mubarak, who has stepped down. So they thought the opposition, with some euphoria, and also because they thought they were supported by Western governments, that a similar thing should, was going to happen in in Syria. And even more, when the Western countries, various Western countries, started to attack the regime of Muammar al-Gaddafi, and they toppled him, in fact. They killed him. In Libya. Or they, the, the result was that he was killed. They thought, well, we will also be helped. But they didn't count on the fact that this regime will not 
in any way step down uh, peacefully. Uh, this regime also, the Syrian regime, had also been observing those developments in other countries, like Egypt, Libya, um, and, and, and Tunisia. So they were better prepared not to give in to anything, if they would ever, with or without the Arab Spring, would ever have been prepared to do so. But then many people could not imagine that uh, what happened in 1982 was Hamas, that this could be repeated on a much bigger scale. We've spoken so far perhaps about the domestic and internal factors that distinguish Syria from some of these other um, countries you've mentioned. I'd, now that you've mentioned Libya, I'd also like to focus on differences in foreign relations. It, it surprised me the extent to which members and supporters of the Syrian opposition, particularly in the early years, believed that the Libyan scenario could perhaps be repeated in Syria. And in so doing, I think, failed to take account the fundamental differences between the two states. In Libya, you had a leader who was friendless and isolated across the board, whereas in Syria, you had a regime which was considered Iran's most important regional ally and also had longstanding relations with uh, Russia, uh, had a special relationship with Hezbollah and Lebanon and so on. Could you perhaps speak a bit about how relevant and important you think these regional and international factors were? Well, they became very important. It, at first, it was just a purely Syrian, intra-Syrian affair. And various countries, uh, including the Arab League and Saudi Arabia, and also uh, Turkey, they did their best to find a solution and to reach a compromise. But there was, they didn't succeed at all. So when these countries failed in mediating in the conflict, they turned around 100% and they started to arm the opposition. So they thought really, and many people in Damascus, foreign observers who were not that much informed about the Syrian regime, they thought that the regime was about to fall in 2012. They fully underestimated the power of the regime and its structure. So countries like Turkey, they started to deliver huge quantities of arms to the opposition. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the Emirates, money. So many countries um, started to intervene militarily, indirectly, not directly. And I think that you can be sure that almost every kind of military intervention leads to disaster. So the opposition had obtained the impression with hindsight, a false impression, that countries like the United States and others were going to intervene militarily, particularly after the chemical attack in 2013, because President Obama, he had formulated his so-called red lines, but he didn't do anything afterwards, once there were these chemical attacks in Damascus or the Damascus area. Uh, the Brit British also, he, they asked their parliament and they didn't get the approval of attacking. I leave between brackets that I don't know what they would have done if they would have had the approval. Because I think many countries after the fail failures of military uh, intervention in Iraq, in Libya, in Afghanistan, they would have thought they would have learned a lesson that it would be an endless other war if they would have intervened in Syria, but now they did it indirectly. The regional interests started also to play a role because 
Iran, thanks to the Americans, got a much stronger position in the whole region after the toppling of President Saddam Hussein. So the, the Saudis were very much against such a development. So they started to intervene in Syria also against the Iranians. You mean they, they were against both the Iranian intervention and against the US-UK's withdrawal from military action? At the time, uh, I don't think that the Saudis were against U.S. and British military intervention. No, against the decision not to intervene. I don't know. I don't know. Many gave that impression that there, the help, this military help, was going to come, but it didn't come. On the same subject, if I can interrupt, I've spoken to a number of diplomats and also um, Syrians who have been very critical of the decision at the time uh, not to launch a military attack against uh, Syria in 2013. And the argument they make is that the purpose of such intervention would not have been regime change, as we saw in Iraq, because its scale would have been much too small. But the claim that's made is that had the Obama administration launched, let's say, a few, you know, a sustained air offensive or missile offensive against Syria, what it would have done would have been to compel the Syrian regime to come to the negotiating table and uh, negotiate a meaningful political transition. Is that an argument that you accept, or do you think that that also rests on an illusion? I think that also rests on an illusion. In the first place, what I think if he, the Obama administration would, would have attacked just like with some rockets like uh, President Trump has done uh, earlier this year, the regime's behavior over the tens of years has been that they receive a hit and then they wait and they continue. It was like uh, if you compare it with the June War of 1967, they even considered it as a victory that the regime had not been toppled. And there is a book by Bente Shella. She writes about the waiting game. So they wait until something happened and the regime may be shaken, but they simply wait, sit it out and then they continue as before. Wait for others to commit mistakes. Yes. Yeah. What I think a big mistake was that if you threat with a military attack and then you don't do it, then you really undermine your whole... Uh, credibility. So I think in the in the first place you should either you, you you threaten with it and then you do it. But if you're not planning to do it, then you should also not threaten with it. So I think actually that if the Obama administration had attacked after these chemical attacks in 2013, then the, re the regime would not have been uh, shaken that much to uh, to go to the negotiation table because I'm sure I, I got at the time a lot of reports that the Syrian regime was very afraid. People military they fled in the red direction of Lebanon, so they were afraid. But if you don't topple it, the regime, then you they they will not uh, they are not prepared to negotiate their own downfall or sign their own death warrant. Well, this reflects your your long-standing views on Syria in which you've, and these are views I think that you've been quite consistent in from the outset, in which you've said that the Syrian regime is basically of, of a structure that it's not going to voluntarily negotiate its own demise, and that therefore Western countries, and particularly European states, uh, made a strategic error in, on the one hand, declaring the Assad regime illegitimate, 
and cutting off all diplomatic communications uh, with it, while at the same time not taking those measures which you've just outlined, which could have led to its uh, forcible overthrow. And I think it's quite different, if I may, to say those things in 2017 than it was in 2012, because I think many observers now see the situation quite differently, perhaps more closer aligned with with your views than than they had um, four or five years ago. So given that today we are in the situation we are now, do you think those same principles which you outlined in 2011, 2012, 2013 are still valid? Or has the situation transformed to such an extent that a fundamentally different approach is required? Well, I think the basics are still valid. I think if you want to have a political solution, then you must you must have contacts with all parties concerned, all main parties concerned. And if you say, well, the Syrian president or regime is illegitimate, okay, you can say, though, and you uh, perhaps say morally, it's, that's right. But if you want to have a solution, if you say he's illegitimate and he must be prosecuted and so on, then you have a guarantee that he, he will not negotiate, of course. Also, if you have cut off all communication, then you can you don't have any influence at all, if you would have had influence at all. So my position from the very beginning is that you must have dialogue, 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 even if you're not fully convinced that something is com- coming out of it. The problem is, the big, big problem is now that when you come six years too late after these these. Uh, these these basic points, which are very elementary and very logic in my view, then there are now more than 400,000 people dead. And there are uh, more than 10 million refugees. There are many people internally displaced. The country is, half of it is in ruin. And the society, the social fabric has been very, very much damaged. So I think uh, many at least Western and also Arab politicians, for their own home consumption, they wanted to have a position that they thought was morally justified. But in, in practice, if it, it is very unethical if you have a position which, in effect, does not at all lead to a solution, but just prolongs the war. That That's clear. But if I ask you now um, to look at this as a diplomat, you're I think basically asking countries that at least politically have been so invested in um, putting forward a particular view on Syria that, that at least to my mind, it would be virtually impossible for them to engage in the kind of U-turns that you feel would be appropriate. So practically, how would it look in terms of um, reestablishing the, the kind of the kind of dialogue that would be necessary to reach a political settlement? Particularly because, as as we were discussing earlier, this isn't anymore simply an intra-Syrian conflict, but has become a regional and arguably international one as well. Yes. So I think one of the main uh, points is that politicians, foreign politicians, whether Western or Arab, they should, and I think they are going. They are beginning to accept the reality. At first, they didn't want to accept the reality. So for Boris Johnson now, for instance, he says, "Well, we should accept that Assad is in power, that he is playing a role in the intermediate, in the intermediate uh, transitional period, as they call it." 
and we have to accept that he stays and that even there could be elections. So that's a U-turn, but a U-turn after um, more than 400,000 dead. I think also the international situation is now very different from uh, six years ago because Russia is now playing a very important role in Syria. Uh, in fact, this was uh, a reaction to the to the interference in the Syrian affairs by other countries that were arming the opposition, including Turkey, that the regime was indeed, I think, in 2005, was stumbling, stumbling, what do you call it? It was... Disintegrating. Well, it was shaking, shaking. Yeah. So at that time, that was the moment that the Russians uh, came. It wouldn't have meant that the regime would have fallen. It could have. But even if the regime would have been uh, shaken, it wouldn't mean that the opposition would have won. This is in the wake of the opposition's uh, conquest of Idlib in, uh, in the summer of 2015. Yes, that's right. And it, the, the regime has uh, exiled more or less all armed opposition groups that were laying down their arms uh, to Idlib. And there you have a conglomerate of most of the opposition groups. But the main main group there is Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, the, the successor of uh, Jabhat al-Nusra. And if the IS is being defeated in Raqqa and Deir al-Zur, then you can expect that the next uh, turn is for uh, Idlib. And I can imagine that for the Americans, it's also very important to eliminate uh, the Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. But there are so many groups like at the time in Aleppo that are present there that it is very difficult to distinguish exactly who to hit and who not to hit. And there is a tendency now, I think, also to not any more support the so-called moderate opposition that much as it was supported in the beginning. And if we now look forward, I think as, as the title of your uh, new book implies, uh, Syria is already a destroyed nation um, and uh, the social fabric um, has, has disintegrated. Um, the economy is in uh, shambles. Uh, it will be a massive reconstruction project if and and when it commences. But how do you see the future of Syria developing in the coming months and years? And to what extent is this how you think it should be developing? Well, I think in the first place, Syria's reconstruction can only take place when there is stability and also trust that the areas which are being de- uh, reconstructed, that they will be safe. I remember in the Lebanon civil war, uh, the Lebanese wanted foreign countries to invest in their country, but they didn't want to invest except if the Lebanese themselves invested. So I think it is a huge project, but it means you have stability and and some trust. Otherwise, nobody is going to reconstruct if there could be um, a war fighting again uh, within a short time. But I think a lot depends on how much the... Uh, United States is willing, and, and Saudi Arabia other countries are willing to continue to uh, support the opposition, military opposition, and how much Russia is willing and Iran willing to support the regime. Well, I think the Russians and Iran, they simply want to keep this regime, not because they like it, but because it's their strategic ally. 
but a point which is important is that once the, the IS would be defeated, then you have the regime forces and the opposition forces, they confront are confronted with one another. And I'm sure the regime wants to recover all, but it depends then on how much the, uh, the United States and others continue to support their clients, so to say. So if you have a lot of a kind of stabilized fronts, doesn't mean that Syria would be split up in various uh, areas, but temporarily it could be that uh, the, the conflict is frozen with some violations. And from there that there could be a kind of political compromise. But the compromise... The, the way I see the regime is they simply don't want to re relinquish any power. They want to share power in the sense that the opposition might have some some positions, ministers or vice president or even more, but never, I mean, you should never say never, but uh, not in the sense that they could uh, have any, make any threat towards the regime. So not the ministry. So a, a regime co-optation of elements of the opposition, basically. That's right. But it's, it's very questionable whether the opposition or people from that opposition are prepared to do so. So, for instance, you could not have the Minister of Interior or Defense. I mean, that's what I expect to have or the security services that they would be in the hands of the opposition. But but the scenario um, that you're outlining, it does sound a little bit like um, Lebanon in the 1980s, where you would have different zones of control by different adversarial powers. And given what you've just said, that you know neither the regime nor the opposition have relinquished the vision of a unified uh, Syria under their sole control, do you think that's that's a realistic scenario well i think uh, well they in the lebanese war as far as i remember the different parties did did not have interference that much of foreign countries like like syria has now so a lot, much depends on the willingness of the different parties to keep supporting their clients. I, I think, for instance, that the Americans, if IS would be defeated and Jabhat al-Nusra and others would be defeated, their interest is not that big, as far as I have the impression, is to, to keep supporting the opposition forces against the regime. This was already for a long time. You had, for instance, this train and equip program. They wanted to... The recently discontinued uh, program. Yes, yes. yes. Well, their precondition of the Americans was that these Syrian military should only fight the IS and not the regime. So I don't see really how they are willing to continue this war by support, keeping supporting the opposition in, this, in an offensive sense, in a defensive sense, perhaps. But I think the regime simply uh, is not willing, and particularly since they have the impression that they ha are willing, to um, to give in to the opposition only cosmetically. Gos van Dam, scholar, diplomat, and author of the um, highly lauded and recommended Destroying a Nation, the Civil War in Syria. Thank you uh, very much for your time and your insights. Thank you very much. Thank you.